in the uh, story of our faith that's found in, in this book that we've been going through for these uh, many weeks. Have you noticed that we've been talking almost exclusively about God? It's his story. It's good news. The story is good news. At the end of the day, there's some bad news in it we have to acknowledge. But it's God's gospel, God's good news. And it's, it's right that our focus has been on God. We've, we've thought about his greatness, his power in creating in Genesis 1. We've thought about how he makes himself known through this word in a way that is trustworthy and is uh, truthful. Now, we did look at ourselves. Do you remember? We looked at ourselves, but it real, was really in relationship to God. And we saw both our glory as human beings. We're made in his image. There's something about us that reflects God himself. But we also saw our dishonor. Do any of you remember that? That Genesis 3, we walked away from him. And all of us have walked away from him. And so we are sinners both in thought and, and word and deed. But God loves us anyway. Hallelujah. And so we came back to him. He came in the person of Jesus lived the perfect life, gave his life in our place, defeated sin and death by our resurrection. And he offers forgiveness in the beginning of a new life through faith in Jesus. Hallelujah. And now he's in this remaking process. He gives us his spirit himself to empower tomorrow to be different from yesterday. And he gives us one another. Remember I said, we are not alone. God is with us through his spirit. We are not alone. We are with us. God gives us one another. And here we are supposed to grow. Now today we come to Article Chapter 8, as Adam pointed it out. And, and to me, Article 8 is really the so what part of this series of the uh, story of our faith. God is this way. God has done this. So what? what? What difference does it make? Or if I can put it the way the Apostle Paul does so often, like in the book of Romans, he goes and says, this is who God is. And this is what we've done. We've left him out of our lives. But God has come after us now. He is the great God. Therefore, he says, therefore, like Romans 12, 1, like Ephesians 4, 1, therefore, our lives are to be different. That when this God that we've been thinking about for weeks actually comes into our lives, nothing should ever be the same. But, but, but in what way should they be different? That, that, that's the thing I wrestle with. This is, as I come to you as your pastor, we look at all these things that God is and has done, and we bring Him into our lives. In what way should our lives be changed? Well, if I can just give you two words. When God comes into our lives, you and I are to become true worshipers. What do you think of that? This is just what I thought you'd think of that. You know, sort of a haze. True, it's a, it's a good church-like term. Well, we must be. Here we are in a worship service. We must be true worshipers. Or, or are we necessarily? I've, I've been trying to figure out how to get at this so that this can actually get from the haze into our hearts. And, and I'll tell you, um, Pastor Scott White and uh, Ken Hilton, who plays so many interest, uh, instruments here, helped me out with this. They have been on jury duty down in Los Angeles in recent weeks. And they told me something's happening in jury duty in Los Angeles now that might be helpful to me. You know, it used to be that you'd see all these television programs where there would be a lineup of potential uh, culprits 
uh, doers of crime, where you'd bring them in front, and somebody who was a witness would try to identify the real culprit. They said now they aren't really doing that so much. But now instead, it, it's more like they have what they call six-packs. Now, I'm sorry to have to use that term, six-packs. I'm not talking about beer, and I'm not talking about the abs that John Sutton and I have. I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about, John. What I'm talking about, what they are talking about is, is they put up pictures of people who fit the profile so that you can look at that and try to see. So I know that in one sense, this may seem like a negative illustration. Am I a real culprit? But any of you who have been uh, followers of Jesus as long as I have, who are Christians in the 70s, do you remember there was this quip that pastors used? If you were uh, arrested for following Jesus... Would there be enough evidence to convict you? Does anybody remember that? So today, if your pastor tried to say, now, are you a true worshiper? Is there any evidence that would point to the fact that you and I are? The question is, look, are you a true worshiper? Or Look around you here. Choir. Are any of us true worshipers? So I'm going to put up some ways, some potential... Uh, candidates for this. First, one who just really loves to listen to good Bible teaching. You come to church, I'm looking out there with those with pens, you take notes. So your ear has become really big. You know the Bible, you know theology. That has to be a true worshiper. What do you think? Maybe. Or, or what about this? Not, not just the head or the ear. What about the person who comes into our service and when the songs are sung and when the message is preached, the emotions are touched. You weep. You can see this is the inside is on the out. I know it's a little grotesque, but you won't forget it. So if the emotions are touched and we feel it deeply and you see weeping and our hands are raised, we must be true worshipers. What do you think? Well, what about this one? The person who is always in church. And you're not just always in church. You even go to Sunday school class. You even go to small groups. Every time the church is opened, you are here. You must be a worshiper. Do you think? Maybe. maybe. Or what about this one? All right, here I'm going to get at the choir and the, the music. That, that's the worship. So if we sing that and sing it to the you know, to the depths of our being and as, as fully as we can. We must be true worshipers. What do you think? All right. I'm, I'm, yeah, I've got one yeah. Hmm. Have that person stand at the end. We'll see. Okay, here I'm going to bring it closer to me. I mean, I mean the one who preaches, you know, if I'm the one teaching and preaching or, or the... the, the the teacher of your Sunday school class, I mean, somebody who teaches the Word, we surely are true worshipers. What do you think? Or maybe, maybe there's something else we should look for. So here, you, you have this in mind. We're looking for true worshipers. Your pastor has already told you that in response to God, that's what you and I are supposed to be. I'll tell you one of the biggest problems that I think we have in the American church with a message like the one I'm bringing you, is that we have taken that word worship and we have equated it with just what happens when we gather here. 
a worship service. So if we show up and do any of this, surely we are worshipers. And I'm going to tell you, we, this should be a reflection or something that at least motivates true worship. But this is not the whole of worship. The other thing we've done is even minimize this notion of worship even more by saying that the music is the worship and the worship is the music. So the worship, I, I didn't worship today because I didn't like it. I find myself and many people saying that. And today we're going to see that it has nothing to do with what I like. It has everything to do with who he is and our response to him. So let me tell you this, just mark it down, that when the kind of God we have been thinking about through this series comes into our lives, it will change everything, everything about us. In what way? Well, let me show you the eighth article of our statement. We'll show you how we're thinking about this as a church family. All right, this is what we believe. And the first line, I like it, but I'll have to explain it. That God's justifying grace. What that means is we don't deserve it, but he's ready to take people like us and make us right. And it took the cross to do it. That grace dare not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. In other words, when we meet God and he makes us right, it must change our lives. In what way? In these. God commands us to love him supremely and to love others sacrificially. And then to live out our faith. How? With care for one another. With compassion toward the poor. And justice for the oppressed. Here's what we believe. With God's word, the Spirit's power, and fervent prayer in Christ's name. We then are to live in such a way that we combat the spiritual forces of evil. And in obedience to Christ's great commission. We are to make disciples among all people, with our lives and words, always bearing witness to the good news of God in our word and in our deed. See, it's supposed to change every part of our lives. So I'm looking for true worshipers today. I'm looking for true worshipers. How are we going to know whether we are? I'll give you a couple of characteristics. Number one, a true worshiper. When we are, we live, and I'm going to steal a phrase from the Apostle Paul, we live not for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. That's, I put verse 14. That's just when you look there, you can't find it. Go one more verse. It should be verse 15. Uh, in other words, when we become true worshipers, it's no longer, I'm going to make a decision about how I want to live my life. Nor is it that I'm going to be conformed to the pattern of the world and live the way others are living their lives. Instead, there is somebody else who directs Every word we speak, every thought that we think, every action that we engage in, we don't live for ourselves anymore. The Bible puts it so graphically, we die to ourselves, but we live for Him. Now, back when I was in college, I was thinking about this a lot, and so I sat down and tried to write out a definition of worship. I've shown it to you before. I haven't changed it very much, and this is what I wrote. Think about it. What is worship then? It's the proper response of the whole of our lives to our triune God. So here's what happens. When we worship, we ascribe all honor, praise, and worth to God. Why? Because He's worthy of it. So that true worship results in God being at the center, both of our adoration, but also of our action. 
both in our personal lives as well as in our corporate gatherings. What I mean is worship is big. It involves every moment of our lives. It's where God is in His rightful place. So that when we gather in church, and it's not about me, but it's all about Him, and we come and say, Father, You are here. What would You have us to do? What would You have us to be? It is an act of worship together when we go out and make a decision simply because we want to honor God. It is an act of worship. And I'll tell you, Romans 12, 1 and 2, is so helpful for us in this. And and what I'd encourage you to do is to mark this, memorize these two verses in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And if you don't bring a Bible anymore and you can't mark it, can you do that with these electronic devices? I, I keep wondering. But there's a directive there that is so helpful. What is worship? Here it is. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. Offer your bodies. Put it right on the altar and say, God, I am yours. This is holy and pleasing to God, is what he says. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is what reasonable worship is all about. You see, Paul was a Jewish man. And in the Old Testament, the kind of worship, the offering that they would make, they'd bring an animal and kill it. But he wants us to have living worship. It wasn't a reasoned animal It was a dumb animal, but now we get to offer ourselves reasonable worship where we stop and think, Father, how did Jesus live? How would you have me to live? How would you have me to treat this person? And when we obey Him, it is an act of worship. We are seeking His will, as Paul says, rather than our own. Now, don't you think it's interesting, we can see if anybody, that he says, offer your body instead of just offer all that you are? I'm sure that that's what he means. He, he's not saying offer your body, but you don't have to give up your thoughts. <laughs> you can keep those yourself. I'm sure he's, he's saying offer all that you are and all that you have to God. But it is still interesting, at least for me as your pastor. It shows you things interest me that don't interest anybody else very much. But it is interesting to me that he specifically says offer your body to God. Now, why does he do that? Well, because I think he's declaring to us it matters to God what we do with this body and where we go with it. Back in Paul's day, many of the Greeks said God doesn't care about the body, so what you do with it doesn't matter. Plato would have really argued that. And many of those who said they followed Jesus said that. And we say, oh, good, we're not Greeks and we don't follow Plato. But I'm telling you, this attitude is still in, in the church now. That God is too big. He doesn't really know and care about what individuals like us do with our bodies. He just wants us to believe. It doesn't really matter how we live. I remember I was speaking at a college gathering a number of years ago in which there was a young man who argued this specifically. What he wanted to argue was that God just doesn't care if we are sexually active outside of the commitment of marriage. That it doesn't really matter to God what we do with this body. It's only a temporary thing anyway. And I'll tell you what he said. I think many people in our world think they just don't say it so blatantly and openly to the pastor type, right? And, and we stop and live in such a way that we feel like we can do with this body whatever, whatever we want. But here we see worship involves all sorts of things. Taking care of the body God gives us. Even how we eat, 
and certainly how we go, where we go, and what we do with this body. And what he is doing is he's exploding this American church idea of worship. And he's saying all of life, all of life is an opportunity for you to have God at the center of your being. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. This is holy and pleasing to Him. This is what worship is about. And when you recognize that, you begin to understand why I say we gather here to worship Him together and to put God at the center. But the real worship begins when you and I leave this place. It's it's why when when you go to your workplace, the way you live there and the way you treat people around you is an act of worship. When you really get mad and you want to say this and you think, but God, you'd have me to say that and you say that rather than this, it's an act of worship. We are seeking His will rather than our own. I used to talk at the college with our athletes about this. I say, I want you to view your playing out on the sports field as an act of worship that every ounce of energy you have has been given by God. Give it all to Him. If He's called you to do that, do it fully and in a way that brings honor to Him. So that's the first thing that I want you to see. If you're going to be a true worshiper, we seek His will. And we live not for ourselves, but for Him. Is that clear? Second, true worshipers, I think... We remember when we were not worshipers. And if you became a follower of Jesus when you were really young, you're still fully aware of what your life would be like if Jesus had not come into your life. You you just know that if you were directing your own life rather than God, where you would take that life. And in uh, Romans 12, verse 1, there's one word I want you to make note of and then one phrase. The word is the word, therefore. I've said this so often. When when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you've got to find out what it's... It's kitschy, isn't it? You'll remember that more than anything else I say today. You've got to find out what it's there for. And what that does is it points you and me all the way back to everything else that Paul has written in Romans 1 through 11. And I'll tell you what you find there in those first 11 chapters is very much like... The first seven articles in our statement of faith. It's all about God. And it makes us look at ourselves in relationship to God and we don't look good. So for a long time, Paul is pounding, listen, listen, listen. You and I, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're young or old, whether you're male or female, all of us have fallen short of what God made us to be. And they didn't want to accept it. No, I mean all of us, he said. There is none right in and of ourselves. Not one. There's no difference, he says. We've all fallen short of what God... But then he tells about, after highlighting how much we've fallen short, how much greater God's grace is. And all of it ends with this. When we think about the greatness and love of God for us, it ends with this mind-boggling song that Paul writes, that Tracy read for us earlier, found in chapter 11, verses 33 and following. Just look at verse 34. Who has known the mind of God? I mean, who of us can counsel God? Who of us gives to God that God has to give back to us because from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory 
both now and forever. Amen. Therefore, therefore, offer yourself to this kind of God and live for Him. So we remember all that God has done for us. And then the phrase, that's the word I want you to see. The phrase is this little phrase that most of us really don't like to wrestle with uh, in view of God's mercy. Do you like thinking about yourself as a recipient of mercy? That you don't earn something? I don't want any charity. I grew up in a very poor state in West Virginia. And how many times I heard my fellow West Virginians saying, we don't want to be charity cases around here. And yet here we are seeing that we have to always remember the mercy of God, that we don't deserve anything, that we have fallen short of Him. And I'll tell you, this is what motivates it, that we have seen that there'd be no hope for me. We remember that apart from Christ. But Christ came and offers us forgiveness we don't deserve. And what happens is Christians... We, different from other religions, don't earn our way to God. We respond. It, it, don't you, we respond to what He has done. He loved us before we loved Him. While we were sinners, He came out of mercy and died for us. This is one of the things that sets following Jesus apart from all other religions. Are you with me here? In Paul's day, when, once he came to Jesus and recognized that Jesus had to die for him, he still did some of the same things he did before. He'd been a Pharisee. And after he became a follower of Jesus, he still did some of the good things he did before when he was a Pharisee, but he did them for a different reason. As a Pharisee, he would do good things because he wanted to establish his own credibility before God and before people. He wanted to be the kind of person that other people would say, yes, there's the kind of person that God would like to have in his family. And then he'd be able to stand in front of God and say, boy, I'm glad I'm not like these other people over here. But he found that he needed mercy. At the end of his life, he had to acknowledge, I'm still the worst of sinners, but he loved me anyway. His, his love, his, his life was a response to the mercy of God. Is that clear? In our own day, in other religions, people do good things. Uh, for, 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 for centuries, millennia, those who have been involved in, in Eastern religions, Hinduism, for example, will often do very good things. But the motivation is different. Uh, in some cases, there's the belief that a law of karma is at work in this world and that eventually it will pay us back for what we do so that in the next life we'll come back as, oh, you'll have to be the ministry council chair in the next life whatever, you know, you come back with some punishment that, that, that happens because of what you've done. And so to keep that from happening, you've got to live a good life. Now, you see, the motivation is duty or fear. But Christians, it's so different for us. In our world, people do many good things. Sometimes it's amazing. Even people who deny God altogether will often do wonderful things. We work alongside in our community, helping in our schools, helping with the poor, with people who don't believe at all in God. But it's for a different reason. I'm, I'm not going to get into the hearts of why so many people do it, but Chris has gotten me to start watching on Sunday evenings a, a wonderful program called Secret Millionaire. Um, I was in reading the other day, and she said, you've got to put that down and come in and watch this show with me. 
So now I've watched it twice, and it's a beautiful thing. Uh, a person who has a lot of money is, uh, take, is taken into a very difficult place. I've seen two of them. One was in Gary, Indiana, where I've spent so much time. Really a community I love, but that's deteriorating. And the last one last week was right down in the L.A. Skid Row. And the millionaire goes in and looks for somebody who's doing good work and finds some beautiful things happening. Most of them are Christian organizations. Just, just let you know. I mean, Adonai and, and FaithWorks are probably Christian organizations, just in case you wonder. And yet at the end, the millionaire whose heart is always touched, when I watch it, I weep because it's so beautiful, almost always says something like this. I feel so much better when I do something good. Well, we should understand that because God has made us that way. But so that I can feel better is not what motivates you and me. The thing that motivates us to live for God rather than ourselves is that we know who we are. And we've experienced the love and grace of God. And we say, Lord, I don't deserve it. I am grateful. Father, my life is yours. How would you have me to live? And he says, Go and love the people made in my image. If I can drive this home even more clearly. Remember last week I talked about reclamation art? And I showed you back in Pittsburgh. Those of you who weren't here, you'll just have to see this. This is Pittsburgh's uh, nine-mile run area. It's called a brownfield. You know, the steel mills uh, in Pittsburgh have to dump their waste somewhere. And this slag, that's what we call it, this slag is dumped into places like this. There used to be a river that ran through this. Now it's called a brownfield, and most people think it's one of the ugliest places in all of the world. But at Carnegie Mellon University, a group of artists says, is there anything there that can be reclaimed? They found 144 species of life. It would not have kept living apart from somebody from the outside coming in to do it. And what has happened is it's been transformed into that. And remember last week I said that's the way God sees us. He sees life and beauty in us that he can reclaim. He's ready to remake us. This week I have to come back with the hard part. Are you with me? That for us to be able to, to embrace the beauty of what God is ready to do, we have to recognize that we are slag. And we don't like to do that. I was talking with uh, the preacher group on Tuesday that I meet with, and, and Jeremy Rose said, Greg, and he, he, he helped me, he said, I was talking about myself. Why is it that I can come to church and hear messages like this week after week after week? And it just doesn't go beyond my head and into my heart. I just go out, say, ho-hum, yes, he did all this. What do I want to do today? And I think the reason is, it's so hard for you and me to own that we desperately need the mercy of God. It's so natural for us, especially as Southern Californian, to try to only talk about the good. And there is good there that is to be reclaimed, but we have to own the... Per we need to read again Jesus' parable in Luke 18, where there was a Pharisee and a tax collector that went into the same room, and the Pharisee says, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. And we still have this tendency of looking out in the world and saying, well... I'm not as bad as Hitler. There might be wrath against sin against Hitler or, or Mubarak or Gaddafi or Pol Pot, but not me. Uh, there, there might be a hell for a person like that, but oh, the rest of us, we're not that bad. 
And the Bible declares, you, you can just find Paul pounding on the pulpit, read Romans 1 through 3 at the end. There's none righteous. The seeds that have led to those ways of life are in us. And God says, I love you anyway. Give your life to me and I will declare you right before me and I'll begin making something beautiful in you. But we have to own the first part. Is this clear? I'm, my mom always used to say, sometimes as a preacher you're just flapping your gums. <laughs> your mouth is moving, but it's not saying anything to anybody. Do <laughs> You see that this is... We are so thankful for the mercy of God that we say, here is my life. Maybe you've come to church and you say, I, I can't believe I even get to be in the house of God. Pastor, if you knew what was in my heart and mind, you'd run me out of this place. Is there a place for me here? And God steps to you and he says, I know all about that. And I love you anyway. I am ready to cast whatever that is as far as east is from the west and give myself to you the more deeply we appreciate that, the more we will be true worshipers. It's the heart of David, the Psalms. I was in a miry pit. Do you remember that psalm? I put myself there, but he pulled me out of that miry pit. He, God, put me up on a rock. He not only did that, he gave me a new song to sing. The more we know that we are recipients of the mercy of God, the more we will be people whose lives are centered on responding to the grace of this God. Finally, and our time is just about gone, but I just want to give a few words about this. The true worshiper, the true worshiper, then lives a life of worship with God at the center. Everywhere we go, every way possible we can conceive of, every moment of our lives. Now, this topic of how we live as worshipers, so much of the Bible is about that. And if you read through the book of Romans, after telling about God, from chapter 12 to 16, it's all Paul saying, what does that life of worship look like? Let me tell you. And he says, it's going to change the way you look at one another in the church. Verses 3 and following. And one of my favorite verses is there for us. Verse 10. When you gather at Lake Avenue Church, be devoted to one another in family love, in brotherly love. And then I really love this one. Honor one another above yourself. So it's going to change the way we look at one another, right? You feel that change happening? And then he says the rest of it, it's going to change the way we live in the world. He talks about what happens when people make fun of us or persecute us for following Jesus. He talks about how to live in our government with the politics that we have. Well, let me tell you, if you don't like all of our politics, his was worse. Just read about Nero and, and first century Rome. He, he talks about how we live in the face of other religions. They were a minority group. All of that is, he's talking about applying it to them. So I've thought about what can I say to us in just a moment? Well, I think the best thing I can do is follow his outline. So um, a true worshiper. Let, let's, 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 put, let's put those up there again. Do we have those? Ah. Here's my prayer, that in asking this question, each one of us who comes to Lake Avenue says, by God's grace through his power, because of God's grace, I want to be a true worshiper of the Lord.
not just someone who shows up and does this for myself, but, but for him. So, so what am I going to encourage us to do? Using Paul's outline. True worshipers begin with loving God. And in our statement of faith, we put it, we will love God supremely. We'll have other loves, but God comes first. First commandment, nothing in the place of God. How, how does this happen? How does this happen? It takes regular commitments, but I think our gathered worship is absolutely essential to it. Now, what you do the rest of your week is important too. You need to spend time in God's Word and in prayer and with God's people. But I think this gathering is essential to us growing in our love of God. I'll tell you why. You come into church. We have that beautiful music that was playing when we come in. It's music about the holiness and greatness of God. Uh, John comes up and says, let's sing a song about all hail the power of Jesus' name. Okay, we didn't feel like it when we came because it's been a hard week. We start singing. I'm just going to give you my own testimony. I start singing. And as I sing, something happens inside of me. I I think, yes, that's what I believe. All all week it's been tough, but that's what I believe. Uh, Angels fall before him. I'm going to fall before him. We take the offering and we stop and we recognize, wait a minute, all that I have he's given me. And as an act of worship, we say, here, I'll give back to you, Father. I'll give back to your work. Use it. Multiply it. Um, th- then I open this word. And, and if, happen, if what happens is what God says sh- should happen, we hear God's voice in this word. God telling us he's here, that he knows us, that he loves us. Telling us, this is how I want you to live. And then the pastor at the end says, are you ready to make a commitment, a recommitment? putting God at the center of your life. And then you know what I so often say, as you leave, the real worship begins. And then you go out, what happens? Everything else crowds into God's place. The financial challenges come, that seems more powerful than God. My my marriage struggles come in, ooh, that seems harder than God can deal with. My children or my parents are getting on my nerves, oh, that's the biggest thing in my world. And so God is shoved out of his place. Am I the only one where this sort of thing happens? No, I know the answer. So what happens out of how you don't even feel like coming on a Sunday morning? And then you walk in and all hail the power of Jesus' name again. And suddenly this part of us starts to come to life. This is what happens to me. And then we make a recommitment to putting God at the center of our lives. Gathered worship should lead to a life where we go to worship over and over again. And as our love deepens, we are ready to live for him. So it begins with loving God. So a couple of questions I have for us. Do you love God? Today, have you fixed your eyes upon him in this place? Will you even now say, Father, I know I have put other loves in your place. I put you back in your rightful place. Do you love him more this week than you did last week? Or if that's too short a period of time than you did five years ago? It begins with loving God. Second, it will always, as Paul says, starting with chapter 12, verse 3, flow into a love for one another. Uh, We must, we can't pretend that we love God and don't love His children. 
And so when we, we gather here, it, it should happen this way. We've been out there in our schools, our communities, our workplaces. People, we're almost afraid to talk about Jesus. We think, well, they'll, they'll mock at me or I don't know what they'll say. Or else we even get persecuted for following Jesus. We feel beaten down. And then we walk back into church and I look around and I say, oh, these other people aren't pretending that they're perfect. They've come here and when communion's passed out, they say, Jesus had to die for me too, <laughs> you know. I'm a recipient of God's mercy. And they, they are followers of Jesus. How can we relax with our brothers and sisters? And it should be such a joy. It's why when you and I meet Christians from other parts of the world we've never seen before and we begin talking about Jesus and his mercy toward us, we know we have a brother or sister. Have you experienced that? It's because true worship of God, when we live in view of his mercy, deepens our love for one another. So I'll just ask you a couple of questions again about that. Look around you. Do you love us? <laughs> Is it growing? Are you just thankful you can come with other brothers and sisters and sing with us and offer ourselves to Him together? And the biggest question is, do we have anything that we know in our lives that has broken us from another brother or sister, a grudge that we hold, something that's never been reconciled? If you do, will you pledge even now to make that right? Take the first step in the other person's direction. It's hard, I know. You may say, but 98% of the fault is that person's. Take, take that first step and, and see what the Spirit of God might do. And then it will flow from that as we go into a love for the world as God loves the world. We'll, we'll see people of the world as, as God sees the, the life that is there, the beauty that is there, the potential for beauty that is there. When we see people who are hurting in poverty or wrongs are being done in the community and we have some resources, we'll show them the love of God. We'll, we'll work. To, when we see things wrong, we'll work as Jesus did that things will be right. When we see our, our people in our schools hurting and with no resources, we'll step in to try to be people who make a difference to the glory of God, to, to show the compassion of Christ. So, so these questions, will you pray that God will give you eyes and heart to see the people this week that he brings across your path as he sees them? Is there any hurting person that God has brought into your life that he's put on your heart? Is there anyone that you just know, I should reach out to that person? And especially, is there somebody who needs to know Jesus? And you know how they can know him. We're going to do this at the end of our service. I'm going to ask Pastor Jeff Leo to come. Um, we're going to take time to remember the mercy of God as shown on the cross. That we're just going to follow this. And then I'm going to come up with, uh, with Myra Nolan. And we are going to think about how that view of God's mercy should send us as worshipers uh, into the world. As, uh, Jeff, as you come, let me just show you those verses again. Therefore, on the basis of all that God is and has done by His grace, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. That's holy and pleasing to Him. 
This is your true and proper worship. So do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And as a true worshiper, we'll commit ourselves to His will rather than our own. Jeff, come and lead us to the cross.